You're listening to Kingdom, Empire and Plus Ultra, Conversations on the History of Portugal and Spain, 1415 to 1898, a podcast series brought to you by UCD School of History and HistoryHub.ie. We're speaking today with Professor Ben Vincent III. Professor Vincent is Provost and Executive Vice President at Case Western Reserve University at Cleveland, Ohio. He's also a Professor of History at Case Western's Department of History. A graduate of Dartmouth and Columbia Universities, Professor Vinson serves on the faculties of Barnard College and Pennsylvania State University before joining Johns Hopkins University in 2006 as a professor of history and the founding director of its Centre for Africana Studies. From 2013 to 2018, he served as Dean of Arts and Sciences and Professor of History at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Professor Vinson is a historian of Latin America whose scholarship focuses on colonial Mexico, with particular emphasis on race and the African presence in Mexico. He's the author and editor of a number of works, including Bearing Arms for His Majesty, The Free Coloured Militia in Colonial Mexico, published in 2001, Flight, The Life of Virgil Richardson, A Tuskegee Airman in Mexico, published in 2004, Black Mexico, Race and Society from Colonial to Modern Times, co-edited with Matthew Restall and published in 2009, and Africans to Colonial Spanish America, co-edited with Sherman K. Bryant and Rachel O'Toole, and published in 2012. His most recent work, Before Mestizaje, Lobos, Moriscos, Coyotes, and the Frontiers of Race and Caste in Colonial Mexico, was published by Cambridge University Press in 2018. He has held fellowships from the Fulbright Commission, the National Humanities Centre, the Social Science Research Council, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation and the Mellon Foundation. He is Editor-in-Chief of the Americas, a quarterly review of Latin American history, as well as Editor-in-Chief of the Latin America section of the Oxford Bibliographies Online. Professor Vinson, Ben, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to have a chance to speak with you. Well, you're very welcome. And in fact, we're going to speak today about your latest work, Before Mestizaje, which is an examination of race and caste in colonial Mexico, and which opens new dimensions on the history of these issues in Latin America by examining what you refer to as extreme caste groups in Mexico. Uh, Through examining the lives and experiences of these groups and others, uh, your work seeks a deeper understanding between the idea of mestizaje and the colonial caste system by arguing that, that if we are to understand the concept of mestizaje, we must understand earlier forms of racial mixture, hybridity and elasticity that served as its precursor in the Spanish colonial world. But... Before we talk about these in in detail, can we first talk about the idea of mestizaje? What does the word mean? What is mestizaje? Tell us about how we understand this term today and from where it emerged. Certainly, Edward. The word mestizaje uh, literally means at this point in time, and it has meant for many years, racial mixture itself. Uh, And so uh, there came a point in the 19th and and the turn of the 20th century where the, the, the concept of racial mixture uh, began to uh, gather more ideological value. Uh, and so uh, the, the sh- the, there became a shift in the terminology as Latin America began to absorb uh, uh, this, this particular perspective um, uh, that, that is distinctive to the region, that racial mixture itself is a way to define the region 
in, in ways that, uh, that promoted the region's value vis-a-vis, um, uh, Western nations such as, uh, uh, such as the United States, for instance, which was booming, uh, throughout the 19th century and into the early 20th century. Uh, mestizaje became a means for, um, uh, for articulating what I call the soul of a continent. Uh, and, and, and what I mean by that is that uh, in an era where uh, positivist theories ran rampant, where uh, people began to question the value of race itself and its, and its uh, ability, specifically non-white races, and the ability for, uh, for these races to, to contribute to a society. Um, and, and there were lots of theories floating around that, that non-white races brought down societies. Uh, mestizaje was a countercurrent to that. Um, and in the 19th, uh, late 19th, early 20th centuries, it started to emerge as a concept that uh, that allowed Latin America itself to begin to to champion and have more pride in itself. And that particular notion of mestizaje has carried forth into the 20th century and into the 21st century today. So when you reference that that terminology, especially in a Latin American context, those are the feelings that come to mind. So. Would you mind describing for our listeners then what your work before Mestizaje is actually about? Before Mestizaje really is an investigation into the roots of this ideological transformation of the term. Um, there has been a, a lot of uh, research done on Mestizaje itself. There has been a lot of research done on the colonial period and the moments in which racial mixture started to take place in Latin American society, but there has been less work looking to connect the two periods, looking to connect uh, what was happening in the colonial period with the modern period, the more modern period. Some of that has to do with uh, belief that there is a fundamental rift between the two, that what was happening in the colonial era, uh, the barriers that were imposed upon people who were racially mixed have really not very little to do with uh, the celebration of racial mixture that takes place in the 20th century in particular. I started to question that. Uh, I started to have a, a different thoughts, given some of the things that I was looking at and finding in the archives. Um, in particular, and I assume we'll get more into this, uh, as racial mixture became more profound in the Latin American context in the colonial period, uh, I started to see fissures in uh, in what was known in, as a caste system, um, fissures that seem to echo and resemble, if you will, uh, some of the themes that resonate in modern mestizaje. And so one thing about modern mestizaje is that it celebrates, again, racial mixture and lo mestizo, or the, mes- the, the, the person who is uh, uh, racially mixed is extolled as an ideal type of human. Uh, in, uh, in, in Latin America. We start to see shades of this, um, popping up in the late colonial period. Uh, and so, and we also see, start to see ways in which, uh, people who are described as racially mixed are not always described, uh, in, in very segmented ways uh, along the hierarchy of a caste system. They started to be spoken of in blanket terms in much the way People talked about the mestizo in the, in the 20th century. So with those clues in mind, I began to wonder if one started to explore more uh, the, the recesses of, of racial mixture, what could we, what w- could we discover? 
what was happening before this ideolo- ideological moment of Mestizaje? And so that's really where, where the questions that, that informed this book emerged. So can we talk about casta or caste and the caste system in the New World? When did the word uh, casta begin to emerge as a word denoting mixed race in the Americas? Curious question. Uh, Latin America is well known, uh, especially in, in historical circles, as having what is known as a caste system. But when you look at the documentation, you, 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 the sistema de castas, as it's called, is something that we actually don't really see registered in colonial documentation. It is something that is really a, um, it, it is a scholar's uh, creation in some ways. Um, but there was inevitably and undoubtedly uh, caste terminology that was bandered around. Um, it, it looks very different than what what caste may look like in some of the better known caste uh, systems, particularly that uh, uh, the Hindu system, of course, in India, which we know uh, is tended to relegate racial privilege on a very, very strict way. Um, and so uh, people surmise that there are elements of that that Portuguese uh, Indian uh, concept that that seep into an informed caste nomenclature in uh, in uh, Latin America itself, but we don't have hard evidence, uh, Edward. We it's it's very hard to to trace the actual terminology. In truth, the beginnings of what what emerged as caste in um, Hispanic America, uh, really start with what, uh, scholar Robert Schwaller has pointed out, uh, was a conversation around generos de gente, literally meaning, uh, types of people or, um, genuses of people. Um, and those conversations start quite early in, in the, in the 1500s. Uh, and, uh, it becomes a way of at least mentally wrapping your head around difference. Um, and as, People in, particularly Hispanic, uh, Spanish settlers in the New World started to wrestle with difference. They started experimenting with different ways to categorize, different languages, uh, different uh, concepts. Casta uh, became one of them. Caste became one of them. But what's impressive to me is that caste was truly one of many emergent terms, descriptors, um, uh, that we now think of in a very hard uh, prominent ways today, but I would argue in the 1500s and the 1600s was one of a sea of terms, nación, nation, calidad, quality, condición, condition, clase, class. All of these are swirling around in, in one big universe of, of terminologies. Caste was one of them and over time began to gain a little bit more oomph a little bit more uh, power, uh, such that by the uh, by the uh, 1800s, it becomes a very, very prominent, if you will, categorization term that has uh, that has become tried and true. Uh, but it was not something that I, I would like to say was kind of decreed uh, into existence, but more accretion uh, in, in, in a creeping way starts to seep into the persona of 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 the uh, of, of the Hispanic American settlement. Okay, so the word mestizo, which you alluded to earlier, um, has old world origins as well. Um, What did mestizo mean and how did it come to be used then in the new world? Mestizo in a new world context really begins to emerge as one of the primary ways of categorizing uh, a particular grade of racial mixture between individuals who were quote unquote white or Spaniard as uh, the the terminology in in, uh, the of the times was Espanol rather than white. 
Um, and so an Espanol with a mixture who is uh, intermarried or intermixed with someone who is of native origin gave birth to the mestiz, uh, gave birth to this individual who was racially mixed. Uh, and so this is really what, when we look on the ground and the way it's lived on a day-to-day, um, the mestizo is, is really referring to this particular grade of person. Uh, uh, and, uh, and it's one that, that emerges early in the 1500s. So three main bloodlines were at the core of what would become a multitude of castas. And these were Espanol or Spanish or white, Indio, uh, Indian and Negro or black. Can you talk about some of the main castas that were to emerge from these three bloodlines initially? Certainly. Uh, I believe I've just spoken about the mestizo, but there were others. Um, the early racial mixtures also brought brought into being the mulatto. Um, the mulatto is the mixture of the of the black and, and white, or the espanol and 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 black. Um, uh, there was also a term that that we see emerging, uh, perhaps not always in the 1500s, sometimes in the 1600s, but pardo. Pardo also becomes a, a term that really begins to uh, be discussed between oftentimes uh, black and Indian. Um, uh, the, the pardo uh, it, it begins to, to, to kind of connote that mixture. Um, we also start seeing a term that's used a lot as, as the castizo. Um, and we see this fairly early on. Uh, the castizo is an individual who was the mixture of an espanol or white with a mestizo. This, the early appearance of this suggests to me something that, that this, the, the, the nomenclature is really about preserving whiteness. Um, uh, and one of the things that we, I think that you need to understand is given the small, the number of settlers of whites who were in Hispanic America, uh, in the, uh, in these, uh, in this period, and particularly in the 16th century and into the 17th century, meant that there was a very deep fragility to whiteness. I like to think of it almost as a porcelain doll um, that was that had to be protected. And these nomenclatures were like buffers, uh, if you can imagine them, uh, to to protect that eggshell uh, that was the Spanish category. Um, and so uh, this is what was going on. Uh, and so these were the cores. You also start to see the term morisco uh, 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 deployed. In, in the early context, it really means uh, people of um, it literally means Moorish, uh, uh, it means Moorish uh, and uh, people who have an Islamic ancestry. And so uh, you start seeing that applied early. But that that particular term is subject to transformation uh, and becomes very differently articulated uh, as as the as time goes on in Spanish America. Yeah, we spoke extensively, actually, in a previous podcast with uh, Stephanie Kavanaugh about Spanish moriscos in the 16th century. And it's quite interesting how, how much it changed when it got to the New World and had nothing to do with Moorish origin then. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. Your work focuses mainly on uh, lobos, moriscos and coyotes, uh, three types of caste. Can you give a brief outline of what these were, as well as some of the other quote unquote peripheral racial categories that were defined under the caste system? Certainly, uh, the lobos, and if we're talking here sheer racial mixture, and I think this is the best way to begin, the lobo category began to emerge as people wrestled with, well, what's the mixture of a mulatto and an Indian? Oh, how do, how we, what is that? Uh, and so people started to say, well, maybe that's, you know, we can call that a lobo. Uh, and, and we, we start looking at these more extreme categories. Lobo literally means wolf. 
they start to take on a, an interesting zoomorphic quality. Uh, um, certainly, uh, uh, something that is a denigration, if you will, to kind of show the bestiality uh, of, of, the, uh, of, these pers- of these personas in, in an ideological way. So lobos start to appear, the, the early documents I find, the late 1500s, early 1600s. Moriscos of the grade that I'm starting to explore, uh, which is different than those of a Moorish, uh, uh, Christians of Moorish origins, different from their background, they really also started to emerge as people wrestled with well, then what's what's the result of someone who's a mulatto and white? What do we do with them? Uh, and so in order to protect that white category again, um, rather than make them something that's uh, that's positively connoted, morisco is is bandied around, uh, which, of course, is loaded with negative uh, negative implications. Poyotes. Um, uh, again, what do we call someone who's the mixture of, of, of a mestizo and an Indian? Well, people shouldn't be doing that. So those are coyotes. Uh, so th- these are the kinds of ways in which these terminologies start to assume life. Um, and people start to say these are ridiculous. Okay. These are ridiculous categories. But again, I found something very different, uh, almost from the beginning of my graduate school days in the archives. People live these categories. These things existed. You note that some historians uh, consider these fringe caste groups to be spurious or even fictional. Um, Now, why do you think this is so when the complexity of racial mixing seems to have been, as you point out, self-evident? I think, again, we got to go back to the names themselves. They seem a bit ridiculous. Um, And so uh, that's one of the reasons why. And the second reason why is there's been a historical tendency when these these castes were not numerous. Uh, so I don't want to even suggest to you that they, they, they were running rife throughout the colonies. Uh, they were there, um, but their numbers, when they appear, historians tended to, to, to uh, conflate them with other mains, mainline categories. Morisco, no, mulato. Okay. Um, coyote, no, 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 that's a mestizo. That has been the approach that historians have, have, uh, have been using for these categories, basically to, to say these are rounding errors. Let's just conflate them to the baseline. But that denies this deeper history of what's really going on with racial mixture and its profundity. And if we're trying to investigate deep meanings of racial mixture into the modern period, if we, again, if always using mestizaje itself as a, as a guide point, which is what I tried to do in this study, uh, we have to insist upon the history of these groups. So even if they were small in number, no more than 2%, 4% in the colonies, uh, for for an ideological a study of ideology and transformation, there's a meaning there that we have to insist upon. Um, so while modern observers and even some contemporaries uh, might be tempted to construe uh, colonial Spanish caste regulation as something comprehensive and imposing, um, there wasn't truth room for variance between regions and colonies. And the enactment of caste policy was distinctively textured throughout the realm. Can you perhaps um, elaborate this on, on this a little bit? Yes. People have uh, sometimes those who are certainly not scholars in this area, a mistaken notion that um, with colonization came absolutist power and and control of colonies, uh, that uh, the Spanish presence was an was a deep imperial enterprise uh, that that reached deep into the uh, into the governing uh, and psychological realm of, 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 of those who were colonized. Um, 
there is there are wrinkles into that truth. It's not an absolute. In actuality, running the colonies was more negotiation than not. Uh, and so um, policies and, and there's some great new there's some great new work on this. Um, colonies uh, were, were often governed governed in concert with the governed. Uh, and so um, as caste legislation starts to spin out, um, it's always brokered at a local level. It's always refracted. And people sometimes said, no, I'm not going to be governed this way. I want to be governed this way. Uh, and so there's co- continual back and forth. And so from the get-go, uh, the, the, initiate, the initiation and rollout of caste policy uh, becomes something that is, that is an, an act of, of, of negotiation. And this is why caste policy never gets firm root uh, in, in, in a Latin American context. It, from the moment it begins, it's, it's already slippery. Uh, and so that's that's really where I think the, the fiction comes in. It has to do with the realities of colonial governance. Yeah, it's this petition and response system that uh, we actually talked about this in our previous podcast, Adrian Masters, and how he calls it a lettered marketplace of ideas between the colonized and the colonizers. You interviewed him. That's great because I was reading his, his work just not long ago. He's done great work on this. You write that, quote, the alignment of stars in the new world uh, induced a supportive climate for human variation, striation and change, end quote. What do you mean by this? In actuality, what, what this means is that uh, from the old world perspective, there was an understanding that uh, obviously the climate of the new world was, was very different than what, was, what it was like in Europe. There was um, uh, misconceptions and, and perhaps uh, wild fantasies about the tropics uh, and uh, and the types of uh, salacious behavior that might be taking place uh, in the tropics, leading to uh, interesting permutations of humans. And so um, there was conceptualizations that the astral position of uh, of Latin America um, in some ways created uh, two things. First of all, a transformation of existing whites in the, in the new world, creating new types of whiteness. Um, secondly, uh, a, an appetite, uh, sexual drive, uh, that, uh, that produced different types of, of, uh, conjugations and, and, and different types of, uh, of, of sexual relations that produced, if you will, uh, spurious creatures that were themselves not just racially mixed, but then further tempered by astral positioning that altered their, uh, their outcome. So, uh, what I mean by this when I write in, in, in the book is that uh, there are two things happening. Yes, there is racial mixture going on, but there's also a, a fantasy about that racial mixture uh, from an old world context, which um, feeds into an uh, understanding that 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 the types of humans that are produced uh, are, are beyond the norm. Uh, and that's really what I'm talking about. This pipes into as well what uh, what many uh, write about in terms of limpieza de sangre. Limpieza de sangre, of course, is something that emerged in the old world in the 1400s and the 1500s uh, that were ways for the Spaniards to really control, if you will, pure Christianity and to guard against that from the threats of Moors and Jews. Um, so in the elaborate taxonomy, people understood what a quarter Jew was or what a quarter Christian was. Uh, it created, when you compound those thoughts about 
religious purity and a taxonomy of religious purity. You compound that with fantasies about racial mixture and realities of racial mixture on the ground. You create a perfect storm, if you will, that gives birth to caste nomenclature. And so that's really where I'm going with this book uh, when I describe these particular, uh, this particular um, uh, area. What sort of legal or social ramifications might come from being mixed race? Um, were mixed race peoples subject to the same laws, for example, as Amerindians? In the United States, we use a terminology separate but equal. Um, and I'd like to use that analogy a bit when thinking about um, what the condition in Latin America. It's not quite the same, but the native population, they had their own courts. Uh, they had their own uh, legal justice which, of course, is not equal in, in, in fact to what was going on uh, for, uh, for, for those who were Espanoles, but was, was separate. Um, what's interesting about the people of mixed race is that they were included within the broader Spanish justice system so that they were included within the world in orbit of the Espanoles or the whites. And so uh, there was a – because of that deeper proximity – I argue there's a deeper intensity in trying to keep the barriers between uh, between Espanoles and mulato or Espanoles and uh, uh, negro, the different caste categories. So there's because of proximity, there is a there's some concern over greater policing. Uh, so um, what, what's interesting is that, therefore, what you find is people of mixed race were oftentimes and especially let me categorize this. Uh, people who were not mestizo or castizo, which in some ways observed or came over time to acquire an honorary whiteness, especially castizos, mestizos less so, but they, they nudged towards the whiteness. Uh, when you get below that, um, there are ways in which people were saying, mulatos, you can't have access to the same jobs. You can't be a silversmith, okay? Uh, or you can't be a minister, you can't be, uh, or, or priest, excuse me. You, 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 you can't be, uh, involved in, in certain types of commerce. Uh, uh, you can't be, so there, there are lots of these that are in place. Now there's a lot of debate about this. I'll be honest with you, Edward. There are those who will quite frankly say, mulatos had it better off. They were better off than the Indian population. And I, what I, my response to that is you got to look at degrees of subjugation at some point uh, and figure this out. Really, um, you're, you're finding us a, a scramble to the bottom of society in some ways. Uh, there's some of that going on. But w what's truthful is that uh, those who are of mixed race, because I argue because of their proximity in this white legal system, uh, there, are, there are definitely ways in which there is a guarding uh, taking place in which Gates are opened, especially in societies where you have very, 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 very few Spaniards and you need extra extra Spaniards around. You kind of let people slip through here and there. Um, uh, but places where you have bigger urban settings, things of this nature, the conditions are different and uh, different types of regulations and rules apply. As you note, um, the caste system produced a potentially infinite range of peoples of various bloodlines who often came to be known as gente de color quebrado, or people of broken colour. Um, this term often went beyond simply describing phenotype or lineage in the 16th or, or in the 17th or 18th centuries, didn't it? Yes, it did. In fact, the I argue that this term uh, gente de color quebrado really begins to uh, tilt and nudge 
uh, understandings of caste more towards thinking about color, thinking about phenotype more than lineage. Uh, and so this is an important conceptual move because uh, when you look at uh, uh, at the way the caste system or a caste, excuse me, system, again, that's our, our presentist uh, interpretation. When you look at the way caste starts to roll out, it is lineage based uh, in its early early days. But there is always a, a physical quality to it. And once people start talking about, well, that's gente de color quebrado, it starts to imprint on the mind that. These, these are people who, because of their color, are broken. Because of what they look like, they are not this. They are not that. Uh, and that starts to move us away from, from lineage. And this starts to seep into the, the greater sea that is, uh, that is caste. And the various criteria employed for defining one's caste, nation, quality, and so on, meant that it was entirely possible for someone to move from one caste to another, right? It is. People moved all the time, Edward, uh, all the time in and out of categories. And one of the interesting things about this work and these extreme casts that I look at is that this process uh, happened uh, more frequently than than most. So uh, I would also argue that the the multiple shades of definitions to to categorize uh, people's what we call today racial condition, uh, but really there are these same concepts bandied around in, with these different language uh, terms, caste, nation, quality, uh, class. Um, what this did, it was created enough ideological uh, jumbling where it became a little bit easier to slip from one to the other. Uh, because through calidad, I'm español, but in casta, I'm mestizo. Uh, so there are ways in, in clase, in class, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm something else. So people could pop up. It's almost like what we call here in the States a whack-a-mole, you know. Oh, here I am as, as a mestizo. Boom. And then you, the, the, the Spanish legislation smites, smacks that down. And then, nope, here I am as a lobo. So this is constantly happening in, in the, uh, in the colonial world. Do you have examples of this caste pluralism? I do. What's interesting for me, and I use this term caste pluralism, is that, um, People are actually uh, living what I think uh, are, are uh, intentionally or not plural caste lives. And, and what I mean by that is it's different than what we describe as passing in the literature. Um, passing involved oftentimes an intentional effort to move from uh, mulatto to español. I'm, I'm trying hard. I'm putting my, doing my darndest to, to, to hide my blackness in order to project myself as, as something else. Pluralism is a lot more fluid and involved a lot less effort. Uh, sometimes, uh, again, because of these, the way these different nomenclatures uh, existed to, to categorize difference, it almost happened naturally. Uh, sometimes a person who moved from one town to the next or from one neighborhood to the next uh, became, could become reimagined as a different casta. Uh, some examples that I have in the book, uh, I'll borrow from, uh, from at least two of those. Um, in uh, 1746, there was this uh, man named Bernardo Carrillo who uh, was uh, jailed for bigamy in 1746. Um, he, uh, and this is a very common occurrence. He could be, he could be almost any man, if you will, in, in, in certain ways uh, in, in colonial Mexico. He lived his life as a robo uh, and an indio in the same town. Uh, um, so, you know, because he probably had some distant, distant African ancestry, um, the loboness could, could seep into his identity. But he was also an Indio. Uh, 
so this was not an uncommon occurrence. Um, I like bigamists, and maybe we'll get into this later, is because bigamy evidence allows us to see people as they move from one town to another uh, and, and, and refashioning their lives. Uh, and so uh, that allows us sometimes to capture the nuance that, that goes on with, uh, with, racial, with racial change. Uh, another case that uh, that is interesting for me is the case of Felipe Callejas. Uh, he had a white father. Uh, his mother was Morisca, um, or uh, uh, of course the mixture between uh, mulatto and white. Um, so he uh, presented himself very differently in times at various times in society. He tried to present himself as a castizo, um, so the mixture of white and and and, uh, uh, and a mestizo. But the law came after him. Uh, they said, wait a minute, you have some black ancestry, you need to pay your taxes, sir. You need to pay tribute to the crown. Uh, and his father threw a fit uh, and said, wait a minute, my son is not uh, of this caste. Um, and he, uh, his father argued, um, look, mestizos, coyotes, and castizos do not pay tribute. Uh, the courts, and so he insisted that his son was at least a coyote. Um, in the end, the courts finally settled that the guy was a morisco. So giving him a little benefit of the doubt and giving him the default category of his mother. And for reasons we don't really know, although Morisco should have paid taxes, he evaded it. So, um, but we see this all the time. This is what I'm talking about in caste pluralism, um, Edward. Um, you present examples of an association between blackness and magic or devil worship. How common was this association and why? This gets us a bit into this color quebrado uh, concept uh, in, a, in a different way. Uh, and also has to do a lot with stereotypes about blackness. Um, we do know that peoples of African descent, uh, when they came to uh, Mexico and other parts of the New World, um, often uh, brought with them some knowledge of medicinal practices and other and spiritual practices from Africa, which became misconstrued uh, in a New World context as devil worship, uh, as um, uh, as magic, uh, things of this nature that uh, were, uh, if you will, um, against the the wills of the, of the Christian society and the Catholic Church, um, and so blackness becomes associated with you will, if you will, with uh, almost naturally and in the mindset of of the colonists uh, in this mode. We oftentimes see as well in a place like Mexico, and this is true of Peru and other places where uh, uh, peoples of African descent and native po- populations. Uh, find themselves in interaction, constant interaction, and there becomes a sharing of practices and ideas. Uh, and those those comings together, if you will, of, of, of different types of non-Christian knowledge uh, become pres- thought of as a deep challenge to the Christian order. Uh, and so all of this becomes thought of as, as magic, black magic, and there's white magic. Some of it is good, some of it is bad. Um, as the scholar Laura Lewis has pointed out, uh, Oftentimes the native population was seen as having, uh, as have being been more benevolent in its, in its magic, uh, those of uh, African descent, uh, more malevolent. Uh, uh, and oftentimes peoples of African descent were brokers between the native world and the, uh, and the, and the white Christian world. Uh, so we see all of these things put together. And what I'm trying to impress upon you is that there is in the psyche, in the understanding of the Spanish colonizer, there is a predisposition, if you will, to, to, think of these contrarian religious practices and medicinal practices, what have you, 
as uh, as magic, and uh, whether it's true or not, uh, it becomes uh, it becomes superimposed not just upon peoples of African descent, but then their progeny, mulatos, moriscos, lobos, automatically uh, uh, processed under a color quebrado framework, broken color, uh, people who are bad, who are not white, uh, becomes a, almost a, an imprinted associated quality. And as an aside, it's uh, out of curiosity, was, did that apply, you think, more to black women as opposed to men? Yes. Because I, I, they, they would seem to have been especially subject to that, no? Yes, you're absolutely right. There's some good studies on this. Um, Joan Bristol is one, one of the good scholars in this area. And Maria... Um, uh, Maria Elena Martin, uh, Maria uh, Elena Vasquez in Mexico City. Uh, there, there are a number of people who, who are able to point this out. Uh, you also say that it was a blending of extreme casta categories and with others, and that it was often intentional. And now this differs from previous accounts of uncertainty within casta descriptions, where previous scholars have viewed these slippages as accidental or unconscious. Why do you disagree with this assertion? Well, I think what what happens is that. I don't want to completely disagree. There were some accidental slippages, uh, and, and I find that in the record. But we also find uh, the conscious slippages, if you will, because people, especially using this, these extreme caste categories, it's easier for people to slip from mestizo to coyote, or coyote to mestizo, um, from, uh, from mulato to morisco. And so people could, with very gentle nudges, uh, and the, oftentimes these changes had some sort of legal ramification, very easily could represent themselves in these ways uh, uh, and, and, and it could do it credibly. Uh, and so that is why I think uh, that there was, there was an intentionality to it that, that's, that some scholars are missing. And the reason why they're just missing it is because they're not insisting upon the history of these particular categories, Lobo, Morisco, Coyote. When you acknowledge these categories, you see the slippages more. Um, uh, and uh, it's especially rife when you look at those people who were categorized more as coyotes or lobos in the first place. It was a lot easier for them to move uh, in and out of categories all the time because they were so mixed that uh, people really, you know, when they're walking down the street, people didn't know really what they were. Uh, but what's interesting is that when you move from town to town, every town has a different understanding of what the lobo is. So, you're Lobo here, then you move to, to next town, you're Coyote, and you move to another town, you're, you're, you're the Morisco. So this is what's happening in, in this colonial environment. Uh, the 17th century saw a dramatic increase in racial diversity among the slave and free populations of African descent, which saw a wide range of modified caste descriptors that combined lineage-based descriptions with uh, phenotypic references, uh, which you have termed the jungle of caste extremes, and which you have outlined in a, an absolutely fascinating table in your work. Um, can you talk to us a little about these these rather unusual designations? Certainly. One of the things that happens, and I'm, I'm glad you referenced that table, is that as uh, we start getting this proliferation of, of blackness into the colony, um, we, again, start getting more phenotypes. And people are wrestling, what do we do? Do we continue to create new categories or do we, uh, or, or do we append, if you will, existing categories? And one of the things we start seeing is a proliferation uh, starting in the 1620s, uh, according to what I've been able to find, of, uh, of what I call compound castes, um, mulato blanco, um, mulato preto, 
mulato moreno, negro bicho, negro cocho, mulato cocho. All of these different ways that uh, you, first of all, put different colors together to create new casts. And then you start to look at what the phenotype looks like. And then you start kind of categorizing that. So um, the, the, the mulato cocho literally means cooked black uh, or, or cooked mulato. So a little bit darker than norm. Um, the, 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 the negro bicho. Uh, I don't know exactly what that means, but I think you could, from hearing it, you could kind of understand that that's not a good thing. Uh, bicho uh, means several things in, in the colloquial language, um, but, uh, you know, like a bug, if you will, negro bicho, um, muleque. Um, all of these things start to, start to flourish. Uh, and, and literally, that's why I start to see a jungle. It's like things are growing wild. Uh, it's, it's, it's just, and they're proliferating, uh, kind of, uh, to an extreme. Um, and some of it is creation of new categories and some of it is just reshuffling existing categories. Um, and so this is what's, this is what's happening in, in, in the 17th century and it moves on even into the 18th century. Although one of the interesting things about the 18th century is that things get a little bit more settled as the, uh, the, the racial mixture starts to mature and you get fewer imports, interestingly, of, uh, of, of Africans. And so you get a little bit more settling. And in this, in this jungle of Casta extremes, there's a particularly mysterious category. And it's, it's one that I'm actually having trouble in pinning down, which is Rayado. What was this category? Rayado is one of my favorites because it literally means the striped, uh, striped black, negro Rayado. Um, and I spent a lot of time, uh, trying to figure this out. And I don't know if, if I got it a hundred percent right, but I do have some, I think some good leads. There was uh, at one point a document I found that refers to something called the Raya de Guinea or the, the, the line or of, of Guinea, um, which I have had a lot of trouble pinning down exactly where that is. But obviously, it's a part of Africa, that uh, geographic region where uh, uh, the Rayados supposedly lived. Uh, and it's, I, I conceive of it as a, as a frontier. Um, but. We do start seeing in the, in the 1600s, in the late 1600s, early 1700s, numbers of, not many, but numbers of these people starting to pilfer into the colonies in Cuba and in Mexico and in Veracruz in particular. Uh, these are, again, are striped blacks. And what that phenotype looks like, I have no idea. Um, we do know that there was something called the Indio Rayado that used facial paints. Uh, uh, and so uh, one theory is that maybe there's some scarification going on, that uh, these are people who are have some uh, facial scars uh, that, that look like stripes. Uh, or maybe these are people, like I said, from the Raya de Guinea. I found this amazing document, Edward, um, uh, many hundreds of pages uh, of someone called um, uh, uh, Juan Domingo Rayado. Uh, and he uh, is a fascinating character uh, in that he came from Guinea uh, uh, from Africa, uh, and became rather wealthy and prominent in Mexico City, working for the, uh, the royal, uh, the royal treasury and mint. Um, and over the course of his life, um, became, became, uh, a real champion for, for blacks in Mexico City, owning several properties and upon his death, creating a haven, if you will, for, uh, for not only runaway slaves, but people who were freedmen, uh, to work in his properties to kind of have gain a life and sustenance. So this guy, Juan Domingo Rayado, is, is a fascinating case study of what's possible in these extreme caste categories. Um, whether he owned this Rayado status per se, 
is is up for debate. We don't know enough about what he did in his life to do that. Uh, a lot of his documentation about what happens upon his death. Uh, but um, I do think that uh, there there was a, if you will, a rayado community that remains underexplored. That uh, that is just ripe for a great graduate student to kind of figure out. Um, and so I, I include as much as I can in the book uh, to hopefully inspire someone to pick this up. Uh, I also noticed that you consulted with marriage records from Mexico City and from the 17th and 18th centuries to help deepen your understanding of the more extreme castes. Um, how were these marriage records able to help you? Edward, from my first book, my first work, one of the things I've always been intrigued about is how deep is racial identity in a colonial context in Latin America. And marriage records are beautiful because they allow you to see how people declare themselves racially in a moment in time. And I scoured the marriage record to try to understand if we could find clues of self-confession that, yes, I am a morisco, I'm a lobo, yes, I yes, I'm, I am one of these. Uh, and what's interesting is that, yes, you do find this, because scholars often say, again, these are fictional categories. No one, no, who in their right mind is going to say, I'm a coyote, okay? Who in their right mind is going to say, I'm a lobo? Well, <laughs> there are hundreds of people who did so in Mexico City, and I found all of them that I could in the marriage record. Um, and so that's really what that study was about. Uh, it's really a study building upon my first work in trying to understand uh, the depth of a racial identity. Uh, I'm, all, I'm particularly interested in your statement uh, that notaries who were recording these marriage applications might actually affect caste testimonies. Um, can you talk about this a little bit and what implications this might have? Yes, I was uh, persuaded by Catherine Burns as I started this project. Catherine Burns is the great historian of Peru, of course, and of nuns, that notaries uh, have more, far more of an impact on the documentation than we've given credit for. So as I started to compile the database, I, I also took, rec took note of the notaries and what, what happens when different notaries are involved in uh, compiling testimony for marriage records. And so what I, I, what I was trying to find out is, uh, can we understand if the testimony is really that of the people who are coming to the altar or are the notaries having an impact? Are the notaries uh, Im impacting uh, the, the terminology? My conclusion is that in the 1600s in particular, I do think the notaries deeply impacted uh, uh, the record. In the 1700s, I think that we start to see more self-confession. Uh, and uh, um, I, have, I think a lot of this has to do with the format in which uh, was utilized to collect uh, marriage testimony. Uh, and I'm also looking to see if with specific notaries, do we get particular patterns in the types of testimony that uh, that are given? So that's really what I was doing. Uh, the basic conclusion, again, is I, I think what I've already articulated, the 1600s, really hard to really get at, uh, self-declaration. 1700s, we can do it uh, uh, with much more uh, with much more accuracy. What was Casta shifting? Was, it a, uh, was this a conscious act or just a side effect of contracting marriage? So Casta shifting uh, really... Uh, Deter is a type of this caste movement, or this caste pluralism that I was talking about. And a lot of it happens in the context of marriage. Uh, and so what happens is that sometimes when someone marries a castizo or, or espanol, their caste shifted uh, in some records to be that of the lighter partner oftentimes. Not always. Sometimes there's a there's what they call uh, a downward shift as well, where uh, um a particular person of a, cer a certain social class that wasn't of the right social class, they experience a slippage. So um, this caste shifting uh, was uh, was both conscious and unconscious. 
Uh, there were times where people who were trying to pass, and I don't want to deny the phenomenon of passing in my work. It was real. Uh, but to tr- who were trying to pass used their marriages strategically to say, when people came to their, their houses and, and took their testimony and said, look, I'm married to her. Hey, how can I possibly be Murata? Okay. I couldn't land this prize, uh, by being a, this beautiful blonde prize by being a mulatto. Uh, and then the, you know, the, the, the census takers say, oh, okay. All right. All right. Um, so that, that's, that's kind of what's happening here in this, in this colonial world. One of the cases you describe has a morisca named, uh, Juana Manuela uh, Villasana, who had her caste changed to Castiza. What kind of impact might this actually have had on her day to day life? Well, this is this is really a good one because um, I think there I'm of two minds on this. It could have had a profound impact, or it could have had none. <laughs> to be honest with you, <laughs> uh, and uh, so let me walk you through the profound impact. Um, if 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 she were really able to maneuver as a castiza, she would have jettisoned all blackness. She would have effectively been white. Castizos in many many categories were effectively white. Uh, and so that would have given her the world of privilege uh, at her at her fingertips. Um, but there are oftentimes, and the reason why I, I, I hedge on this is because, by the same token, society was was trying to protect. And it depends on when you lived, uh, when you lived your life, and where you lived your life. People were trying to say, look, you may be you may be saying you're a castiza, but that doesn't mean a darn thing in in Actopan. Okay, and I'm just using. A, an example here. So you, you can say this all you want and, and you may send this over to uh, the crown and, and the king might be able to, or, or you know, his minions will, will, will read what they will, but that's not going to do anything for you in, in the parlor down the street. You're not having access to this library, Missy. Uh, so yeah, that, that's, it could have gone both ways. Uh, and, it, and we need more records, of course, to, to really explore that. No, you also, as you mentioned, examined a number of bigamy cases. Um, what did these tell you? Bigamy is fascinating, not only for the stories that you read and you're, you're captured by, by, by the salacious details. But what, what, what's beautiful about these bigamy cases, as I mentioned earlier, is you're catching people, you're catching people as they've, they've hopped around and have lived different uh, experiences. So what I was trying to determine is, uh, for these, these extreme casts, um, what were they floating in and out of? Were they were they floating in and out of mainline categories, or were they floating in and out of? Uh, and, and by that, were you going from Coyote to Español with any regularity, or were you hopping around from Coyote to Morisco to Lobo? Uh, I'm finding a, a, a bit of both, but I'm I, I'm more persuaded that than ever by by going into this by, through this work to say that those who occupy these fringe caste categories tended to inhabit more of these fringe caste categories. And so this leads me to a theory that I, I start to articulate of something called hyperhybridity. Um, that people who lived on this extreme um, were subject to multiple permutations that that they that were conscious, that they sometimes knew about, that they themselves enacted, and that sometimes were just involuntary as people looked at these cases, for instance, as as these cases, bigamy cases circulated around through the colony and different um, from different towns. Uh, and, and different legislatures, legislators, um, they wrestled with what to do with these categories, and they often reassigned race and, and caste um, at will. So as people themselves lived different castas, administrators were piling on different castas on top of them 
that had a real effect on their lives in some time, in, in some instances. And sometimes those effects happen years after the cases. So by being, by, if, if, if someone in a case said, this Morisco is really a Negro, that, that person might never feel that until they go to court in some, in some instances and say, oh shoot, I've been categorized as a Negro. And then that, uh, that opens up a whole wheelhouse of, of other legislation and, and other investigations into caste. So it was plausible for someone to, to live through 30 different caste permutations over, over a period of 15 years. Uh, and that to me is, that's more than hybridity. That's hyper hybridity. That's becoming what you're not and what you are at the same time. Um, can you talk then about the way caste was stripped of its oppressive colonial ideology in the post-independence era in Mexico? Um, how did caste come to be understood in 19th century Mexico? Um, because there seemed to be you know, a fairly wide range of views on its meaning. Yes, um, we must start with the premise that as Latin American societies freed themselves, they consciously tried to rid themselves of casta. They articulated it, they decreed it in law, uh, and it took time. It didn't happen overnight, but um, slowly. And in the case of Mexico, it's really 1840s or so, we start seeing casta slowly start to fade away from the books. Uh, you have to look in parish registers where you still see it uh, uh, utilized. But then after 1840, 1850 or so, you really start seeing a decline in the actual casta categories. But what I'm arguing here is that Casta lives on. Uh, and so the reason why people were so insistent upon trying to get rid of Casta is that it reminded them of, of the oppression of, 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 of Spanish colonialism. Um, but, and, and in the early years of the 19th century, Casta is utilized as a political tool, uh, to, uh, to, to, to kind of in the in the debate that swirls around between liberals and conservatives, as a way to to kind of uh, mar people as conservatives. Okay, it's just, look, they're trying to reimpose this old order on us that we've been trying to get rid of, and wasn't it bad back then? So we start seeing a dichotomy and a utilization of casta in that way. But something starts to change, Edward. Um, as I as I studied the the, the work of many thinkers. Uh, uh, and I have not looked at all of them, but I've looked at enough of the leading thinkers in Mexico to see that rhetoric starts to change post-1860 in, in the writings, especially of this guy, Ignacio Manuel Altamirano. Uh, he and this other guy, Justo Sierra Mendez, these two individuals, um, prominent thinkers and literary figures in, in, uh, in Mexico, start to utilize Casta differently. They start to say, wait a minute. This, these castas are us. These castas are the mesti, are, were the mestizo. These castas were the people who we, who we are now. They were, they are the racially mixed nation. Uh, and so we start seeing this pilfer through in some, in some writings. Uh, and it starts to me to, to, to signal a very transformation of the idea and starts to set the bed for mestizaje. Um, this becomes a platform for thinking about the end product of racial mixture, which is this unitary, if you will, mestizo, that, that, that is all of us. This transformation is actually something that starts to happen actually in the late colonial period. Casta itself, even in the colonial enterprise, starts to be referred to as a singular term to refer to all of racial mixture uh, by colonial administrators. They say, wait a minute, there's so many different casta categories. Let's just call them castas. 
Um, and so uh, that starts to happen. Uh, and these thinkers in the 19th century start to piggyback upon that. I don't think it's conscious, but they start to utilize that rhetoric uh, in their own words. Again, this is another project for graduate students and, and other scholars. Um, I've looked at some records, but this is a book about the colonial period, thinking about the future. Um, but a good 19th century historian could run with this uh, to test these ideas, to see, you know, if Costa was this platform uh, that I've that I've seen traces of. I believe so, uh, but there's a deeper story there. How do the ideas of Casta and Mestizaje persist today in Mexico? Very interesting in that Casta is often still thought of as this this yesteryear concept, uh, this part of the, the part of the distant past. It's been tucked away in the history of Mexico, uh, at, at least uh, on, a, on a conceptual level to, to, again, as a foil and as a straw man, as a contrast to show how just to show just how far we've come. We are no longer this. We are no longer that. But yet. Periodically, you see references, you see faint traces of usage of nomenclature. I saw this when I was traveling in Mexico in the, in the 1990s, in particular in the western parts of Mexico, in the Costa Chica, uh, which is traditionally a, a, an area of African ancestry, where people used very ornate language to refer to blackness. People were called negro papayaste, negro, negro fino, negro claro, different ways, different shades of blackness. Reminds you of these of these colonial nomenclatures. Uh, the end of the book ends with a cartoon um, depicting, if you will, uh, a modern usage and thinking where uh, President Fox is, uh, is 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 depicted as uh, as a viceroy uh, talking about uh, the plight of uh, of Mexicans and, and 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 blacks, if you will. This stuff pops up from time to time in many ways that Costa was used in the 19th century as a political tool but also as a way of understanding the profundity of racial mixture. Because despite mestizaje, people are still struggling with ways to categorize. Despite the fact that everyone is a mestizo, people are struggling with people are not all mestizo. And there has to be a language. There has to be a terminology. But there is a history that links us. There is a history that provides the vocabulary and the conceptual framework for thinking about difference. I argue that that history is Gasta. Which brings us to our final question then. Um, what do you hope your work adds to current discourses of race in Mexico or, or indeed to the wider historiographical body of work on caste in Spanish, uh, Spanish America? Edward, I'm convinced that this is not a singular story. I'm convinced that there are other, other places where this happened. Peru, I think, is ripe for the picking in this, in this study. I think Venezuela may be, may be another place with different possibilities. I think that we need to dis we need to start looking at this uh, idea of connecting colonial and modern periods in mestizaje um, uh, region wide. Uh, we're going to have a lot of different comparative stories, a lot of different ways to uh, to to tell this tale. Um, but I think that what it also begins to show, uh, what it will begin to to unveil, is uh, mestizaje's ever deeper capacity to wrestle with 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 racial difference. I think mestizaje. Um, for all it's worth, has, has, in an interesting way, its true limits of the ideology have yet to be explored. Um, I think when we talk about mestizaje, we, we, we often think about the singularity of the mestizo. There is space in mestizaje for bringing in negros, bringing in 
uh, uh, indios in other ways that they're denied their history in current formulations of mestizaje. When we are, think about the deep history of caste, we can begin to see the ways in which other groups were accommodated within, within a colonial framework that are the, the are the, are the, uh, ancestors of modern mestizaje. And in that, maybe there is a way for us to uh, envision a more encompassing and embracing Latin America that that embraces the deeper totality of its racial history. Before Mestizaje, The Frontiers of Race and Caste in Colonial Mexico is available now from Cambridge University Press. Professor Ben Vinson, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much.